Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness Podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American fan service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness Podcast. This is episode six. I'm Lori. And I'm Polly. Happy Halloween. I know. It's, it's hard to keep track of time uh, this year. Uh, everything seems to sneak up on you when you're staying mostly at home. So I'm happy to see Halloween come about. Yeah, me too. And I, I get what you're saying about losing track of time. I think maybe if it wasn't for these episodes every two weeks, I don't think I would have any sense of the passage of time either. So <laughs> um, I'm really excited about this episode, as I was telling you earlier, Polly, because we are now going to be talking about uh, the 1983 compilation album, Madness. But before we do, let's get to the communicator. Oh, boy. Okay, so a few things of note. First of all, as of today, October 31st, we've hit 588 downloads, Polly. Do you believe that? I, I can't because when we started this, I wasn't really sure what um, podcasting was. And uh, when I learned it's kind of like people listening to other people kind of yammer on, I didn't think there'd be more than 10 people who would be into that. So if we got 588, I'm, I'm quite pleased. Yeah, me too. Apparently they like our yammering on. I guess so. <laughs> so speaking of podcasts, we have to give a special thank you and a shout out to the In Excess Access All Areas podcast with Hayden and B. I'm a big fan of their podcast. And week before last, they gave us a shout out. They directed listeners to the Stateside Madness podcast. So thank you for that. I love the NXS Access All Areas podcast. Of course, I'm an NXS fan. If you're into NXS, definitely check them out. And thank you for the shout out, Hayden and B. Yes, thank you very much. Very kind. Yeah, they're good people. Um, okay, so a couple more things. Uh, Rick in New Jersey won the JoJo Man Band CD that we were giving away last episode. Congratulations, Rick. Enjoy your new CD. Absolutely. And we hope to be giving away more stuff. You know, I was thinking about that, Polly. We should give away something when we hit a thousand listeners. What do you think? Sure. I, I think we should. I don't know what we're going to give away, but we'll come up with something. We got a little bit of time. Okay. So last but not least, and this was kind of going back to episode four, my comments about the lyrics to NW5 have apparently stirred up a little bit of controversy in both Twitter and Facebook. I had not one but really? two, Yeah. I had not one but two people write to tell me that the 
official band website says tarpaulin eyes, so therefore the band must know. But you remember what I was saying in that episode? I know it was maybe four weeks ago, but I was saying how these lyrics websites, they all copy off of each other. And so when there's an error, it gets propagated. And I think that's what happened with the Madness website, because if you look, they also have the same incorrect lyrics for Razorblade Alley that are on all of these lyrics websites. So the, the correct lyric for Razorblade Alley is, teacher, take me to your school. Either the Madness website is just pulling in from the same database, or whoever's running their website is just copying and pasting content without fact checking. But uh, uh, one of my Facebook friends actually weighed in on this. My Facebook friend Graham says that he's spoken to Lee directly and Lee said it's taught bullet eyes. And that's okay, I'll take that. I mean, I, that, that's definitely, that makes a lot more sense than tarpaulin. Of course, if Lee wants to come on and, and set the record straight and, and let us know exactly what he meant with taught bullet eyes, uh, Lee, we would love to have you. So find us online. I think it's the only way to answer the question. So let's just make it happen. Right, directly from the horse's mouth, right? Absolutely. So that brings us to this episode. So as I mentioned, we're going to be discussing the American compilation Madness that was released in 1983. Now, Polly, when I posted this on a few Madness Facebook groups, I was very surprised at how many British fans hadn't even heard of this album. So as we've been saying from, from day one, this is an American podcast. This is a podcast for American fans. And in the U.S., Madness had been signed to Sire Records by a guy named Seymour Stein. Their first two albums on Sire Records in the U.S. sold very poorly. Uh, One Step Beyond peaked at 128 on the charts and absolutely peaked at 146. And I think Sire Records was extremely disappointed and they, they dropped Madness. Uh, a Sire publicity spokesperson said that they're not an American sounding band and not geared to an AOR format, an album oriented radio format. So it really didn't seem like they were having much luck in the American markets. But somehow in 83, after they got dropped by Sire, they were signed by Geffen Records. Now, in the meantime, in Britain, they'd released two more albums that didn't come out here in the U.S. Those were Seven and Madness Presents the Rise and Fall. Those two albums were not released in the United States. Geffen wanted to release a curated album of songs that would appeal to an American audience. So they put together this compilation, which they called Madness. They only have one track from One Step Beyond, three tracks from Seven, six tracks from The Rise and Fall, two single A-sides, and absolutely nothing from Absolutely. There were no tracks from Absolutely on this album. Um, of course, MTV is coming into its own. 
according to the first CEO of MTV, Bob Pittman, they didn't have a lot in the way of videos and they threw anything on there. And Lori, I'm sure you remember the rise of uh, MTV and it, and it was, it wasn't very genre specific. They just, whatever they could get their hands on, they threw out there. And um, so consequently that meant playing bands that didn't necessarily have releases in the United States or um, certainly any following in the United States. So that sort of Madness's true entree into the United States market was the release of this album and the videos. Yeah, all of these British bands that otherwise maybe would not have had exposure in the United States, all of a sudden, all of us kids were sitting around watching our televisions and, you know, here's these, these seven British guys doing this nutty walk and uh, it was nothing we'd ever heard before. It was nothing we'd ever seen before. So I think without MTV, I don't think that Madness would have, would have ever had the, the success that they had in the United States. I should, I should clarify that. So coming off of this with the album's unexpected success in 83, they really hastily threw together a tour, an American tour. This was their first American tour since 1981. And they headlined shows at some of the smaller venues. And then at larger venues, they opened for acts like The Police and David Bowie. And 1983, that tour is significant to me because that is the last time that Madness played my city, Chicago. And you know who they played with at the Aragon Ballroom, Polly? You're never going to believe this. They played with Ministry. Oh, really? Yes. I, you're right, I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, remember, early 80s, they were still kind of coming off of their, you know, dance disco with sympathy kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, Aragon Ballroom in Chicago, 1983. I couldn't go because I was nine years old. Madness, please come back. Please come back to the Midwest. Please come back to Chicago and Detroit, right? There, there are places other than the east and west coast we love you here in the midwest please come back they did such a good job i think picking these tracks because if i were to create a mixtape or a playlist for somebody who'd never heard madness before and I wanted to get them really interested in Madness, I think many of these tracks are tracks that I would have chosen. Yes, uh, yeah, so at that point, uh, given only four albums, uh, they really did pick the most, um, I wouldn't necessarily say American friendly, but the most uh, engaging and, you know, sort of you know, beginner level introductory Madness. So yeah, they, they certainly did put some thought into which uh, selections they were gonna put on there. We're gonna start with track one. And honestly, I think track one is probably the one that most Americans recognize. Of course, I'm talking about Our House.
says his Sunday best. Mother's tired, she needs a rest. The kids are playing up downstairs. Sister's sighing in her sleep. Brother's got a date to keep, he can't hang around. Our House uh, was a, originally a 1982 single from the album The Rise and Fall in Britain. Came to us over here in 83. Uh, spent 19 weeks on the charts and peaked at number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 in July of 1983. So that became the band's biggest hit. I, I think it is just such a, a relatable theme. I mean, I grew up in a big family. I'm the oldest of six, seven if you count my stepsister. And so the idea that there's always something happening and it's usually quite loud, you know, I mean, this whole idea of, of this house full of kids and, and mayhem, and it's just, it's so relatable, you know? What do you think of this one, Polly? Uh, I never heard it. Get out, you're fired. <laughs> well, no, so uh, of course it's, it's their signature song. Uh, by far the biggest song in America. It's a big deal in the UK and the rest of the world too. You know, it's it's what they're known for. And, and no wonder, I mean, it's just the most uh, perfectly crafted pop song. Heavy on the strings, great melody, really upbeat, um, very relatable, just like you said. We all grew up at some point and that's an awful lot of what it was like you know, being a kid of the 70s and 80s. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was going to be a hit. Destined to be. Of course. I mean, I love it. Why wouldn't I? It's, it's fantastic. I feel like I need to talk about the video because, again, this was, you know, my introduction to madness. And the video is just so completely wacky. It is unlike anything we'd ever seen on MTV, you know, up until that point. Because everything up until then was like, you know, uh, beautiful, beautifully quaffed boys with makeup, you know, Duran Duran and, you know, Spandau Ballet and all that kind of stuff. So this was completely different from anything else that was being played on MTV at the time. The, uh, the, the video, okay, so we have Lee Thompson, the saxophone player, dressed as the mother, you know, and he's got all the stubble on his face. Uh, we have Chaz Smash as the dad. We have the, the, the kids as schoolboys. And just, I mean, the video made me laugh so hard. It was very kind of, I don't know, almost Python-esque kind of humor, you know, like I'm half expecting Graham Chapman to show up and say, I don't like spam, right? Um, the other... <laughs> The other really interesting thing I think about this song is it really kind of presents this almost idyllic, you know, nuclear family, you know, uh, mother's got an iron father's shirt and then send the kids to school. And it's really kind of ironic. I, this song was written by Chris Foreman and Chess Smash. But it's really kind of ironic when you think about the fact that just about everybody in the band came from a broken home. And so this was the kind of home that they didn't have with the mother and the father, uh, you know, head of the household kind of thing. Now that's not true of all the members of the band, but I think that's true of most of them. So I almost wonder if this is kind of written from a place of, of like longing, you know, like maybe this is the kind of 
kind of childhood we wish we had. Maybe. Agreed. Anything else that you want to throw in with our house? Oh, we should talk about the American commercials that it's been in. Sure. So aside from the, uh, the, um, what is it, Miracle Grow or Scots or something I, like I that? I think it was, it was, what else yeah. Has it been used in? There was a Maxwell House coffee commercial a few years back that they used it in. Oh. Which, yeah, that's appropriate, right? Maxwell House, our house. Yeah. All right. And now we're going to play the second track off the album. Tomorrow's just another day. Uh, second track on the album tomorrow's just another day this is another barson and chaz composition and uh chaz said uh it represented how he felt um about some of the friendships he was in um how you your actions could be misinterpreted and uh i guess this is the second time probably that themes come up with chaz next to don't quote me on that maybe he Maybe he misspeaks often, um, but nonetheless, uh, that's sort of the uh, theme of the song. Great uh, song, not as up-tempo as a lot of stuff they do, but just fantastic lyrically, uh, fantastic melody, a really, really strong track. And if you've got the uh, expanded CD, DVD set of The Rise and Fall, um, they have the Elvis Costello cover uh, and I believe that's Elvis playing with the band, actually. Yeah, no, you're correct. You're correct. That is Elvis Costello playing with, yeah. with Manus, yeah. Is that a harpsichord I heard in the song? I, I swear there's a harpsichord in there. Uh, <laughs> I can't say off the top of my head. All right, let's move on to track three. It must be love.
It Must Be Love. Now, that is actually a cover of a song from the 70s by an artist called Lobby Sifra. Sifra? Am I saying his name right? He's best known in the U.S. for his song, Something Inside So Strong. He's a, a British singer-songwriter. You know, I think we should play just a little bit of the original so that our listeners can hear how different it sounds. So let's play a little bit of the original Labby Siffer, It Must Be Love. As soon as I wake up. big difference in the sound quite a bit so mike barson chose this song for the band and at the time they started playing it woody had actually never heard the original which is maybe a good thing because then he really kind of put his own spin on it as far as the rhythm the original was in 12 eighths time which is a very complex time signature and because 12 is divisible by three it's actually almost like a waltz beat in, in a weird sort of way. Woody plays it in like standard pop 4-4 four, four time. And I think as a result, we get something that's really, it's Madness's own. Even though it's a cover of the Labby Siffer song, it's really, Madness owns it. You know what I mean? They really took it and made it their own. So this was, uh, what we heard was a remixed version that was issued in North America as the follow-up to the single Our House. It was Madness's second biggest U.S. single, spending 12 weeks on the charts. It peaked at number 33 on the Billboard Hot 100 in October 1983. And it's been used in several commercials, like Our House. Um, you might remember it. There was a few years back, a Levi's Jeans commercial that included this. And uh, there was a Volkswagen Passat ad several years ago that used it, too. Sure. No, uh, I, I do remember about the time of the Levi's commercial um, <clears throat> that I had uh, a couple of peers, people I knew, would comment on that and ask, um, you know, who's that, who's that band? Where have I heard this song maybe before? And um, I would, of course, mention it was Madness and uh, go through my, not association, but my, you know, my being a fan of Madness and into the you know whole explanation of madness and you remember the our house song and, and the whole thing like that so hearing it again was a nice way to reintroduce some people and um introduce some people uh, a lot of younger people at that time uh kind of took to it you know great song catchy able to sing along and um so it gave me a chance to do my Grandpa Polly thing and explain the history of madness to a, a few youngsters, which was uh, always fun to do. <laughs> nice. I got to tell you my, my, my silly, it must be love story. This just happened a couple weeks ago as I was preparing for this episode. You know, I like to listen to the music. I was watching, uh, there was that UK special they did uh, a few weeks back. It was like madness then and now or something. And I was, you know, I was getting in the zone and this song came on and my cat Pinky 
comes up to me. Now, I've had Pinky since college. Pink, Pinky's a very old cat, okay? He's, he's very old. And he starts looking at me with these huge, sad eyes, like Puss in Boots in the movie Shrek, right? I mean, it was, I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And my husband says, sweetie, you're not singing to him. And when Pinky was a kitten, I used to sing this. <laughs> I did. When, when Pinky was a kitten, I used to sing this song to him all the time. And so he, he gave me these big sad eyes. And so I patted, I had him sit on the couch next to me and I was singing, nothing more, nothing less. Love is the best. And then he was happy. <laughs> so I am a crazy cat lady. <laughs> I am a crazy cat lady and I do sing madness songs to my cats. <laughs> okay. So let's take a listen to the fourth track on the album, uh, Primrose Hill. Right, so that was Primrose Hill, uh, written by Suggs and Chrissy Boy, in uh, another one of the six off of the Rise and Fall album. I tried actually doing a little research because um, I've always been curious about the lyrics to Primrose Hill. Much of it is easy to understand. It's somebody looking out a window, watching what's going on in the view of the park. So Primrose Hill is adjacent or close to uh, Regent's Park in London. You know, it has a bit of a pastoral sort of scene as, as much as you can in the city. You know, the, the hill, the grass, trees, the whole bit, the whole park thing. The line about wanting to be there or go to Primrose Hill, but having not gone there still, um, I was curious kind of what that was alluding to, did not find anything online. I didn't know if it was the sort of case where it's somebody who's uh, stuck, stuck in the house, can't, can't leave, some sort of thing, um, or what really the meaning of that part of it was. But uh, nonetheless, fantastic song, probably one of my favorite songs on the rise and fall. Catchy pop song. Let me tell you my take on it. Um, <laughs> So one thing that a lot of people don't know about me, and they might actually be very surprised to learn, even people that I'm friends with, is that I suffer from mild agoraphobia. Now, agoraphobia can be a number of things. It, it can be a fear of crowds. In my case, that's what it is. It's a fear of crowds. But it can also be a fear of unfamiliar places. And in very, very severe cases of agoraphobia, you end up with somebody that is just, they shut themselves out from the world. They, they shut themselves in their house. They never go out. And so the lyrics, I stare out of this window, see the world go past. 
or there's another part where it's like deliveries every day, newspapers and food, never had to venture out, the phone has been removed. And that's really kind of what I see in this, you know, that this is obviously somebody that's got severe agoraphobia. They're afraid to go out of their house. So everything is delivered to them, right? Newspapers, food, all that kind of stuff. And then they're looking out the window and they're watching, you know, children playing. They're watching all the activity on the hill and kind of, you know, a little sad about it, but also kind of living through those people because they know that they can't actually go out themselves, you know? You know, I, I make everything like some weird, complex psychological drama, right? But that, that's how I interpreted it. I mean, <laughs> it, to, to me, this is a song about an agoraphobe. Makes sense. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Potentially, I looked, uh, tried to see if there was a um, uh, a prison in the vicinity. I don't think it's that. Yeah. Uh, but I think your take's probably the right one. Aside from the lyrics, I absolutely love the horns in this song. The horns are just absolutely beautiful. That very powerful kind of horn chorus that comes in. I love that. So I think this is a really, really good song. And it's a little bit of an unusual song because I think most of the songs on this album are like things that were released as singles. And this one wasn't. This is a deep album track. So uh, it was an interesting choice for them to put this on this album. Okay, so next we have Shut Up. So that was Shut Up. Uh, It's actually the 1981 edited single mix. This was released as a single in Britain in 81. It's off of the British album Seven. It's notable because the words shut up do not appear in the song lyrics at all. And Polly, I've been itching to hear your take on this song because I know you have one. Um, No, it's it's a fairly, um, I think, straightforward tale of debauchery and thievery and uh, again the uh, fairly uh, standard theme in madness songs so I suppose the shut up refers to just keeping your mouth shut around the the popo five oh <laughs> so interestingly enough I, I I can think of actually several people that I've spoken with either virtually or in person who were not allowed by their parents to buy this album madness because they saw that there was a song called shut up at least when we were growing up shut up was akin to swearing you never said shut up that was like just a horrible horrible 
you know, wash your mouth out with soap kind of thing. So I think it's interesting from more than one person, I've heard this, that they were not allowed to buy the album because there was a song called Shut Up. Interesting because uh, given the the time, uh, you know, around 1981 to 83, wow, there was so much more, edgy and confrontational music out there on the American market. Uh, Shut Up would seem quite benign compared to a lot of stuff. So, but any, anyways, different, different families, different values. And so then uh, we're gonna uh, move on. Let's take a listen to number six, the classic House of Fun. So we talked about House of Fun a little bit in the uh, Tomo episode, I believe. Um, and so, of course, this is a song co-written by Barson and Tomo. Uh, this is the original full 1982 single version featuring the fairground ending. And um, again, topic-wise, it's about a young man coming of age and off to the apothecary to buy condoms. So there you go. Uh, in case you forgot from that episode. I love it. Fun song. Really moves right along. Witty. A lot going on there. And of course, uh, it, there wouldn't be that House of Fun Weekender Festival in the UK if we didn't first have the song, House of Fun. So Lori, what are your thoughts on the song? Well, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know that it was about a kid trying to buy condoms until I was about 40. <laughs> that symbolism was lost on me somehow, but now I get it, right? He's too embarrassed. He's 16 today, too embarrassed to say that he's looking for birth control. So he's, you know, a pack of party hats with the colored tips, party poppers that pop in the night, right? He's trying to use all these euphemisms and the woman at the counter is just not getting it. So, uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, one thing I think is notable for American audiences that this line, uh, this is a chemist, not a joke shop. A chemist in the UK is not a chemist that we have here, right? It's not a scientist with chemicals. A chemist is a drugstore, as you mentioned, an apothecary. One other thing that, that I had read about in, in preparing for this episode is I guess the, the chorus Welcome to the house of fun. Now I've come of age. That was not originally part of the song. And they had all the verses, but they didn't have a proper chorus. And so um, Dave Robinson at Stiff Records insisted that they had to go back into the studio 
and come up with a chorus. And then they came up with that, welcome to the house of fun. So then they dubbed that back in. So originally they were recorded separately. I mean, it's, it's interesting because it, it flows together so nicely and we can't envision that not being part of the same song. But uh, it, it originally was a very, very different song than what came out. And this was another one that I watched a lot on MTV. And it just seemed like such a fun video, you know? It's just seven guys hanging around at an amusement park. All right. So next up, boy, our, uh, our listeners, if they never heard this song before they started listening to us, Polly, they probably know it by heart by now. Nightboat to Cairo. I would hope so. So that's Nightboat to Cairo, which we've heard before, but this is a different version than, than we've heard in the previous episodes. So as was a very common practice in the early 80s, they often remixed songs specifically for an American audience. Like I know Duran Duran, they, their American version of Rio had a very, very different sound mix than the version that was released in their native UK. And it was the same thing here. So they brought, particularly the organ is a lot more prominent in this version than what was heard over in the UK. I think the strings kind of stand out a little bit more too. But as I was listening to this the other day, and I, again, I usually listen to the original version and I was listening to this and I was in the other room and all of a sudden I started to hear something on the, the lower end that I hadn't heard before. And I realized it was that organ that was really just kind of amped up a little bit. So again, it remixed for American audiences and it, it sounds a little bit different. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I guess I would say exactly the same thing that you had said. I don't um, tend to listen necessarily to this, um, the Madness album too much. Um, I've got it on CD, uh, but these days I'm either listening to um, LPs or um, I might be listening to downloads. So uh, most of the downloads I've got, I think, are all of the UK versions. And all the albums I've got are actually imports from the UK. So, yeah, I don't often hear that version. Um, but I, I actually find it a little bit superior. I, I do think I like it better with the more prominent strings in Oregon. Sounds just a little bit more lively to me. All right, so let's move on to and listen to number eight, The Rise and Fall.
All right, so Rise and Fall, of course, the title track to the album Rise and Fall. And um, it, the album was supposed to be a concept album about childhood memories. And of course, if you go through the Rise and Fall and listen to all the songs, uh, there certainly is uh, that theme going through them. It's definitely a song about nostalgia for childhood, right? These are the streets that I used to roam. And as you mentioned, this is from the album, The Rise and Fall, which was intended to be a concept album. And I guess when the guys were planning this album, they all went off on their own. And, and the idea was, we want you to write songs about your childhood memories. And they came back with some great songs. I mean, um, Our House is on this album too. What better song about like childhood memories than Our House? And this one, you know, and a bunch of other ones. But then Mike Barson comes back with this song, New Delhi, which has absolutely nothing to do with anybody's childhood. It's like, I dreamt I was in New Delhi, slowly dying of La Grippe. <laughs> where, where did that come from, Mike? Um, but this was another, another song, I think, that was chosen off of that album to, again, kind of appeal to a broader audience than just just a British audience. And, and I think it was a good choice. Absolutely. All right. So another track from the rise and fall that they chose to put on this album. So the previous one, and then this one, uh, neither of these were singles. These are album tracks. Track nine is blue skinned beast. But I can promise no return To a shell-shot godforsaken Where the craters still labor Have a drink on me Have a drink on me Still the worst is over That I hope you understand Then you're one more hurdle over A protector of the land Have a drink on me I put you down to the company so this was really kind of an odd choice i feel like for this album i mean it's a good song it's a very strong song but i don't know if if many american audiences will really get it right i mean it's it's about the 1982 war between Argentina and Britain over the Falkland Islands, which I have some memories of interrupting my Saturday morning cartoons for breaking news. Clive Langer has said the blue skinned beast is Margaret Thatcher. Now, something that maybe might be confusing to American audiences is in the United States, our conservative party, the Republican party is red. And the liberal party, the Democratic party is blue. But that's the opposite in the UK. In the UK, the conservative party is blue. So the blue skinned beast is an allusion to that, to that political party and Margaret Thatcher, who was of course the prime minister of Britain, who was elected from that party. What's your take on this one, Polly? 
Yeah, I, I wasn't aware um, that it was referenced to Margaret Thatcher, you know, back when the album came out. Uh, I actually thought it was, might be referring to some sort of military machinery or something like that. There's a, certainly a long history of, um, in the military of anthropomorphizing uh, the machinery and airplanes and things like that and referring to them as animals and whatever. So that was my take on it. Like I've said a bunch of times, I don't tend to dwell a great deal on lyrics. Um, and so for, for years, that's what I assumed it meant. I thought maybe they were referring to a tank or something like that. You know, and maybe it shows kind of how ignorant that many of us are, including myself, I think, of international politics, that to this day, I do not understand what in the Falkland Islands was worth fighting over. I mean, they're big industries. I looked it up. Their big industries are tourism and fishing. But there must be some reason why these two countries decided that it was worth fighting for and worth worth dying for. Because, I mean, there were casualties, several hundred casualties on both sides for these two little islands that are, well, I don't know if it's two, for these little islands that are right off the coast of Argentina. I don't know. I, I, please don't, don't write in and explain to me the geopolitics behind the, the Falkland Wars. I... I, I don't know that I really care that much, but. So yeah, it was interesting here that there was reference to Margaret Thatcher and boy, doesn't Margaret Thatcher come up an awful lot with bands that came out of the, the two-tone and the Sky Revival movement. Um, certainly mentioned an awful, awful lot. Well, isn't it interesting I was talking to a friend about this the other day. It's like every time that there is a very big swing in history, a big swing towards the, the, the conservative end of the leadership, right? Which we're seeing now, both in the UK with uh, Boris and then over here with Trump. Every time that that's happened historically, there's always been a, a, a musical movement that has somehow accompanied that, right? In protest, against this kind of conservative thinking. So you mentioned like the two-tone ska revival and then also punk was really the other big movement that came out of that. And I'm still waiting. Where is our good new musical movement that is coming out of this current political moment? Come on, kids, you're letting me down here. We need something. We need for something from you guys. All right, so 10th on the album is cardiac arrest. Let's take a listen. Nearly done. It's so hard these days, not nearly so much fun. It's 
All right, so that was Cardiac Arrest, uh, written by Chaz Smash and Chrissy Boy. And the version you heard was a 1982 remix single version, uh, which was the B-side of Our House, and uh, the song originally appearing on the album Seven. The BBC had decided at one point that this song was unplayable because it was about a heart attack, which is just weird. Um, I don't really get, uh, I just don't get, uh, why you wouldn't, uh, be down with that. Um, but anyways, the words cardiac arrest do not appear in the song at all. And of course there is the line, uh, think of seven letters begin and end in C like a big American card, but misspelled with a D. So in reference to, I suppose, the Cadillac. Uh, that's the only rhyming American car there. Cadillac is not even close. It's not even close. We're seven letters, big American car was spelled, uh, misspelled with a D. Cadillac, cardiac. That's really a stretch. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about it, that. <laughs> yeah. I, I've always found that uh, a bit curious, but uh, my, my spelling's pretty poor anyways, so. Uh, but yeah, and again, another really, really fun video, um, complete with the suitcase vibraphone, I, if I remember correctly. Um, so Lori, what are your thoughts about the zone? You know, it's catchy. It's catchy. It's got a, it's another one of those that I know we've talked about in, in previous episodes where a really kind of bouncy up-tempo song, really morbid, sad subject matter. But I, I guess in the end, you know, the message is, don't you worry, there's no hurry. It's a lovely day. Could all be going your way, right? I mean, it's, you know, just don't take everything so seriously. There's more to life than your job. And I think maybe that's a reminder that, that bears repeating now and again. Okay, now we come to track 11, Grade A. actually one of the band's older songs they actually used to play it back in their days when they were still the invaders before they were madness before they had a recording contract uh, this was a single that appeared 
uh, in 81 over in the UK. It's off their album seven. Really. I like it as a fan because I think it really shows the band's range, right? They, they've really gotten away from this image of them solely being a ska band. Now, I mean, it still kind of has the, the, the Jamaican inspired bass, but they've really expanded their range here. It's really kind of impressive. Well, so there's a story here. Uh, and Polly, I know you're a fan of The Clash. Supposedly, Suggs went to a club where Joe Strummer was DJing and slipped him the tape and asked him to play it. And Joe Strummer refused to play it. I don't know what the story is behind that. Yeah, but I, I've, heard, I, I've heard that, uh, I, I think, once before as well. And uh, timing-wise, I guess, if this happened close to around the Invaders' time, I think Joe Strummer was all full of uh, bluster at that point, and he was kind of not having it from anybody. So it wouldn't surprise me if uh, he had no, had no use for stuff like that. Also, particularly headstrong, and um, when he would be DJing, uh, he was so confident in his selections that I think he couldn't envision anything else working with it. So not, not surprising. Well, there's a little bit of a history, I think, with, with Madness and with The Clash, too, right? There's that story about when Madness was filming their video for Shut Up, uh, which is a track we listened to earlier in this podcast. And the video, if you've never seen it, it it's, it's old school cops and robbers. And so most of the band are dressed as old Bobby policemen. And supposedly the Clash were filming a video like on the same lot, studio lot or whatever, right around the corner from where Madness were, uh, were shooting this video. And so the boys from Madness surprised the Clash showing up dressed as cops. And the Clash didn't realize that this was Madness and they thought they were cops for real. And so they flushed all their drugs down the toilet. Again, that's the story. <laughs> I, I think so. Uh, uh, Chris, uh, Chrissy Boy, I think, doesn't really refute that, um, but uh, he, I think he says he has no recollection of that, but uh, I, uh, the story goes that he, he, he played a part in that, and um, these days he claims he doesn't really remember anything about it, but nonetheless... Uh, why not keep a good story alive? We'll just say it's the absolute truth. Right. Who was it who said that when the truth conflicts with the legend, always print the legend? I don't remember who said that, but. So that is the line from the, the John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. Hey, speaking of John Wayne, there's that line, the line there's a line in the blue skin beast. Right. Again, going back a few few tracks, it mentions John Wayne. Right. You know the line I'm talking about? I think uh, um, I'd have to actually start the song from the beginning. To OK. Remember. All right. Because I swear it sounds like if John Wayne got his pants off, don't be shocked when it comes your turn. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> Uh, the lyrics site say it's John Wayne got his bounce off, but still, what on earth does that? Ha where I don't understand that lyric. 
You know, it's like, I want to, oh, John Wayne. Yeah, I know John Wayne. It's, he's American. What? <laughs> okay. Get, get, us, get us out of the last track here, Polly. <laughs> All right. Um, so, <laughs> uh, let me start that again. All right, so the last song, uh, uh, Chrissy Boy Tune, Madness, parentheses is all in the mind uh so don't be confused folks because uh this would be another song called madness and also performed by madness so let's take a listen Okay, and that was Madness is All in the Mind. This is the 1983 single mix and was a B-side of Tomorrow's Just Another Day. Again, one of the six from the Rise and Fall album. And um, it's got a little bit of that 60s rolling R&B sound. You got a note on here, Lori saying it's kind of reminiscent of the old Peggy Lee classic fever. And I guess I totally do see that, but what makes you, uh, what makes that association for you? Well, at the very, very beginning, you know, um, never had much cause for worry. And, you know, I mean, and, and the kind of the, the snapping, you know, I, I mean, it really, I mean, it shifts, right? It, it shifts when it gets to the, the chorus, you know, people say that I'm crazy, but it, there's definitely some parallels there, don't you think? Absolutely. No, I think that was, that was a good observation. I love this song because it's Chaz Smash singing, and I love his voice. I think that he needs to sing more. Don't, don't, don't there's, at me. There's a problem with that plan. I know he's not with the band anymore. It makes me sad, but you know, I can hope. One, one, one huge hitch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. who, who knows? Uh, hey, they're all still, they're all still around. We can hope. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Barson left the band for a while. He's back. Better's left the band for a while. He's back, you know, so uh, a girl can hope. These things happen. All right. So that's the last one, isn't it? That's the last one. So, you know, Polly, you know what I'm going to ask you? Because I ask you every episode. What's your favorite song and what's your yeah. least favorite song? So uh, it would be easy to say Our House. Um, and by all means, Our House is my favorite song. But uh, if I had to pick a second, 
to appear smart and not say our house, I would definitely say Primrose Hill. Just absolutely lovely, lovely melody. And um, you know me and melody. So no, I love Primrose Hill. Um, least favorite song. Oh God, I hate, I hate it when you do this to me. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to say Grey Day. Okay. How come? Never mind. I won't put you on the spot and ask you that. Because um, I, <laughs> I had to say something. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and it's hard with this, this particular album because, as I mentioned, this is a curated collection of, you know, their best. So, you know, even picking, you know, a song as your least favorite on the album, it's still within its own rights a very good song. You know what I mean? So my favorite, obviously, my favorite obviously is Our House. Uh, that's the song that first turned me on to madness. It also reminds me very much of my own childhood and my, my sisters and my brother. And you know, we still sing it to each other from time to time. I think if I had to pick a least favorite for this album, again, with the idea that these are all 12 really strong songs, the one that sticks out like a sore thumb is Blue Skin Beast. It's a good song, but I just don't think it's, it, it was a good choice for Americans, for an American audience. You know what I mean? I think there are some other songs they could have picked that maybe, maybe would have been a better choice there. And Polly, you have chosen our closing song for this episode. What can you tell us about this closing song? I can't pronounce the name. <laughs> ah, okay. But yeah, I'm curious to hear you say it. Moraccioli. Oh. <laughs> okay, so. Yeah, you got it. Is it hard, hard C? No, Moraccioli. Moraccioli. Yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> it's me, Mario. Um, so uh, the closing song, it would be an Our House cover, of which there's a few out there. And it is by the Moraccioli family. Um, and Leo Moraccioli is a metal musician and producer based in Norway. Um, he sometimes tours internationally with the band Frog Leap. And um, for each video... He creates uh, the arrangements and plays all the instruments and um, go to YouTube, look it up. It's actually a pretty fun uh, video to see. And I think I always love a good metal cover of uh, something from outside of that genre. And I hope everybody else listens to it and likes it. Yeah. Well, okay. So this Italian girl is really proud of your pronunciation. It sounded really, really good. Um, so thank you for picking the closing song and thank you for another great episode, Polly. Just a reminder, we're going to be back in two weeks. We're going to be talking about the U.S. release of the album Keep Moving, which is different than the version that was released in other countries. We're also going to have a guest, Donald, who is the uh, keeper of the Stateside Madness blog. I refer to him as our Madness Maven. Uh, he's got some some very good opinions about this album. And he knows a lot about the background. And so he is going to be guesting on our episode in two weeks. So we welcome Donald next week. And until then, happy Halloween. 
And uh, everybody, uh, have a, a great rest of your day. Goodbye from me. Goodbye, folks. Thank you, and happy Halloween. And go get a beer.